Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer on the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the fantastic Elizabeth Knox speaking to Kim Hill. Elizabeth Knox has been imagining fantastic worlds and characters since she was a child. Some of those plots are still unfolding. The writer shares stories from publishing rejections to publishing sensations, starting with the Vintner's Luck, and how she emerged from family loss to write her latest book, The Absolute Book, which she feels is her best yet. We're excited for this year's book festival being held from July 7 to 10. Head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz for confirmed authors, tickets and more. For now, please enjoy Elizabeth Knox speaking to Kim Hill. And I will take questions from the floor. I won't. Elizabeth will take questions from the floor um, at approximately 15 minutes from the end. When is the end? Oh, 8 o'clock. <laughs> and there's an opportunity after the session to buy a book or several, but buy a book and have it signed by the author. Um, grateful thanks to our sponsors um, at the session. You are enjoying Astrolab Wines. My name's Kim Hill, um, it says here. <laughs> uh, please welcome Elizabeth Knox. Who is, I mean, I won't without much further ado, she is one of New Zealand's most original writers. And otherworldly is the expression that always comes to mind. Um, and indeed, that's what she does. <laughs> she creates other worlds. Whether it be the Vintner's Luck, a Dream Hunter, or her latest, The Absolute Book. 13 novels, plus a collection of essays, memoirs called The Love School. The title of which comes from the Reverend Moon. Yes, it does. Because you went to a conference sponsored by the Washington Times. Post. Post. Time. Times. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, the post the is the Bernstein and Exactly. Exactly. You have to yeah. think through you just, that one. You just, you just had to do this thing where you always say... It's not that to, one, it's the yeah, other one. So, that was, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You so, and Carl Stead. Yes. Went to basically a Mooney conference. Yes. Look, so so what happened was, at that point, I hadn't been out of the country for so long because of small children and poverty. So um, that was 1997, and, and I was a writer-in-residence at Vic, which was a big break for me and fantastic. And... Um, Lloyd-Jones rang me up and said, I've been invited to this weird conference sponsored by the Washington Times, who are a right-wing newspaper. And with, I think... The They're Rever funded by the Unification Church. Yes, with the Reverend Moon behind it. And I'm too scared to go, but Elizabeth, you like weird stuff. Do you want to go? <laughs> and I said, yes, Lloyd. Oh, he didn't go. No. Just you and Carl Stance. Yeah, me and Carl. And we were hanging out with Frank Morehouse, um, the Australian writer, who 
is really manages to convince you that he has been a secret agent in his former life. Whether or not he has been a secret agent in his former life is something I wouldn't say yes or no to. I just don't know. I frankly don't know. Um, uh, and, 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 and a very sweet Iranian children's writer and two magnificent women from Iceland. So we formed a kind of little core. It would have been called... Guterson. Uh, Dottier. They were both Dottier. Yes. Yes, one of them was very young and glamorous and has since become a filmmaker and actor and everything. But anyway, so we hung out, which kind of sheltered us from the weirdness of the whole thing. Because, for instance, they did this thing where they said, well, you will need headsets to listen to the translators for the conference and, you know, just to, to listen in. Um, and this was it was in Washington, and it was in the Hyatt Hotel. The whole thing, and uh, but they took our passports as security against this, <laughs> which is you know you go like, uh, and then at the end it was very hard getting our passports back for some reason. Um, and yeah, and it was bizarre. And the Reverend Moon actually did give us a uh, talk. Yeah, um, and he said. He said, Home is the school, school of, of love. love. Home is the school of love. Which, um, which that was that quote, because I thought, yes, okay, Reverend Moon, why not quote Reverend Moon just to sort of, you know, kind of skew things a bit. But it was also because it had the essay in the book that's uh, kind of a fictional response to Seraphine Pick's art. Does everyone know Seraphine Pick, the artist? So I she did a wonderful, wonderful picture. Called The Love School. For the cover of The Love School. Yes. Which is The Angel and the Vintner. Yeah, it's a angel. It's actually her boyfriend, but she'd broken up with him and she didn't want to see that picture of her again, so she gave it to me. And then I called her up and said, can I put this on the cover of the book? And she said, yes, and I will avoid the bookshop. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it worked very well. Literary history is very peculiar. And w did they try and get you to join the Unification Church? They, well, were they, I suppose they thought it was going to work, but, they, but Reverend Moon is terrifying because he sort of bombards you with something that isn't human. Um, I, I don't know. Did you have a religious experience? No, no, I had a, what the opposite of that, but he kept referring to himself. As what the, is the opposite of that? <laughs> you know, the bit, the bit where you feel like you, well, I suppose the bit where you feel like you do need to get cleansed somehow and, you know, exercise somehow, but, you know, <sighs> not in that room, you know, you're going to leave that room and go somewhere else. But he kept referring to himself in the third person and he kept talking about the biography of great, like, the Buddha and Christ and everything, and then seeking into his own life story in the third person. So the uh, obvious association that he, you know, he was, he was one of these great figures. And he, his voice was sort of loud and atonal, and it just kind of, like, droned on and on, and you kind of wondered whether he just wore down his, his acolytes with... Um, with, I don't know, with, with whatever the men who stare at goats do. <laughs> you were brought up an atheist. Yes. But you do have religious experiences. Yes, I do, yes. Um, Explain that. Ex well, you can't, can you? <laughs> 
so that so, is the point. Yes. So, so, so yes. So the thing is about I mean, Dad, because Dad had Dad was a Catholic, raised as a Catholic, and because he loved his mother and he loved the church, he loved being a choir boy, he loved singing, so he loved being a choir boy and he loved being an altar boy and everything, and then he got molested by a priest. <laughs> you know, classic, classic circumstance, and it, you know, the, the hypocrisy of the broken trust made him, you know, think, you know, basically, to the church. But at the same time, he was interested in religions, and he just became a person who knew about every religion so that he could say that religious, the religious instinct is a, is, a, is a human instinct, but it doesn't represent reality. But I do remember him saying things like, well, I don't believe in ghosts, and I wish they'd leave me alone. <laughs> he, I mean... <laughs> prone to the same sort of oh is it my brain or is it real things that, that I that I am but, and his mother was Irish she, she came here at 14 and um, she was on a, her own um, uh, yeah she came from the west of Ireland she came on her own at the age of 14 no no she, with her family no, interestingly she came with her father and her father's second wife who at that point was the housekeeper of the family and his mistress leaving behind his wife and yes and that was he had to get away so he also left behind all his property so they were kind of landed gentry over there they had they had a bit of land and and it was all quite good and he was educated and he wrote a pornographic novel in French so that no one else could read it in the family <laughs> and real character um, and he but all his kids came with him. I think probably his wife, you know, their mother was probably a bit awful. But anyway, he lost all the land, disappeared, and it went to the church because his older sister inherited everything and she was a mother superior. Uh. So there you go. So, you know, and that, that is just typical of everything to do with everything to do with either side of my family. If there's any money, or we'll, we'll just, it'll, it'll go some better place. <laughs> And, and the family home will end up as a B&B. <laughs> You're quite forgiving of your father. Oh, I mean, he gave father. you a horrible childhood. He gave me a horrible teen years because he drank very badly past a certain point. But he was a lovely, sweet man who had no father of his own and who was the youngest of a family that was very poor. And his mother couldn't cope with him, and he, dreadful things happened to him. Um, not not only the priest, um, you know, <laughs> but um, he he because of the priest situation, he began acting out, and it beggars belief that people think that kids go off the rails and they don't ask that question, you know. They didn't ask that question. What's happened to you that you're suddenly setting fire? There was a there was a fire in the 19, early 1940s that burnt a part of um, Tinnakory, as they used to call it, Hill back then, Tinnakory Hill. Um, and it's you know it's it's part of the historical record. That was my father. <laughs> he he burnt. He set fire to the forest. My father, the pyromaniac. Yeah, the pyromaniac. So and he was. He wasn't stealing, he was running a scam. So he was drummed out of the scouts and he dressed up in his scout uniform and went round on a paper drive, because this was wartime. So, you know, he went round all the rich suburbs of Karori collecting 
magazines as a paper drive, you know, sort of to be scrap paper. But then they were good magazines from Karori, so he'd go and sell them in the second-hand shops and, and, and down in Courtney Place and um, make a bit of money, you know, to do whatever... 13-year-old boys need to do with money and he was found out, expelled from his school and became a welfare boy and was sent to a farm in the Wairarapa where the farmer was a sadist who beat him. Yeah, and he was, you know, not fed enough and he, he was very, very homesick and it was very difficult. So, you know, up until he ran away to sea at getting on towards his 16th birthday but he wasn't legally able to be a merchant marine but they looked the other way they you know he was a desperate person so they said oh yeah okay you come on board the ship you work you know we'll see how you go um up until then he'd had a very hard time and I think when he when he gave all of us a hard time and when he gave my mother a hard time because you know he was alienated from his sexuality after being molested and and he was constantly seducing people Woman, I mean, not men, you know. But anyway, he constantly—he was a—he was a philanderer, a philanderer, a Lothario. He was a, in a class of his own. He was very good looking. And I, I, when I was a teenage girl, I used to have these women come up to me and go, "Oh, I know your father," <laughs> and oh, he had such beautiful eyes. And I go, "Oh, it's another one he slept with." <laughs> Yeah, it was very strange for a teenage girl. But your mother put up with all this until you all left home. And then she said, give up drinking or I'm off. Yeah. And he said, tellingly, you quote him as saying, I'm stopping drinking. Yeah. Not I have stopped drinking. Yeah, he pretty much did, though. Yeah. For how long? It, no, for good, for really. The rest of his life. But he had wrecked his health. But his health was pretty wrecked anyway, because I mean, he'd had terrible diseases of childhood. He had no teeth left by the time he was twenty, um, and I mean, from poverty, and um, and he smoked from thirteen till the day he died. So yeah, so he died at seventy-four, um, just worn out. Yeah, mm. he was a writer as well. He was. He was a good writer, and he. He kind of decided that he couldn't... I mean, the story he told about himself when he was trying to discourage me um, was that you can't be a writer and have a family life. And I can remember him telling me there weren't any great woman writers, for instance, and, and I discovered Virginia Woolf at that point and said to him, what about Virginia Woolf? And he said, oh, but she was a bad wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so he was like, you can't you know, earn money and look after people and be a writer. But but um, he, later he said to me, no, actually, I, I wanted to be a novelist, but I couldn't be a novelist in the end anyway because I wasn't actually interested in people. Um. So he was a good journalist and he, yeah, and he, I think he would have done more writing and he probably should have done more writing, but I don't know how, whether he knew how to imagine himself that way. But after I started writing, he did write almost, he wrote um, a memoir. So there's a memoir sitting there, which I would love to get a publisher for sometime. And it's not a full memoir because he ran out of steam because he was becoming ill, but it goes up to his days in The Listener. So working with Monty Holcroft and everything. So it, it kind of does this, this, you know, this child, this terrible childhood and then his adventurous youth and being a mountain guide. He was a 
mountain guide in the Alps and then meeting mum and having a family and working in The Listener back in the 60s. And it's really interesting and it's well written. But, you know, it's not finished. <laughs> he, um, he said something terrible to your sister when she was sad or upset about something. He said, why, what's up with you? You're not clever enough to be sad. Is that what he said? Oh, God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, I've forgotten I wrote that down. Yeah. Um, yes, he was, he, was a, he was a bad, bitter drunk. So, and he, you know, he was constantly kind of telling us we didn't understand anything and we were just these stupid girls. And Yeah, we were witnesses. I don't know why you're so forgiving. Town. I mean, it oh, seems extraordinary to me. He was a lovely man. Mm -hmm. He was a terrible man for about five or six years. But before that, he was lovely, and after that, he was lovely. So that's it, really. All right. I mean, the, the, the difference between him on the booze and him not on the booze was, it was, it was a huge difference. Yeah. So he was capable of all sorts of harm before that, and he could be really silly, but he was charismatic, and he was sweet. He was a beautiful, sweet nature, which his mother had too, and my grandma. She was Is that lovely. why your mother married him? Yes, and he was beautiful, yeah. <laughs> she was like, oh, his eyes. You know, they were right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got another memoir coming. I do. About? Well, I'm, I'm, I undertook to write it before I was ready to write it, so, you know. And you then, mean with your publisher? No, um, with, with the Michael King people who gave me the money. Oh, <laughs> So, so you know, I, I, I you're in I, debt. Yes, I am. But I wrote the absolute book and and began and am ending now. Kings of this world, the young adult book that I'm just about finished during that time too. So I think they get three for the price of one because the memoir comes out eventually. So I started too soon with the stuff about my mum and the motor neuron disease when she was when she was dying of motor neuron disease. I hadn't kind of reclaimed her in my mind. Um, the privations of the illness were too present. And my memory of her as a person was not present enough. But, you know, time passed and I sorted all that out. But then I realised along the line that I had... So, explain that bit to me. Your memory of her, what do you mean? You, her debilitated self was too large for you and so you were unable to to revive what she used to be. I think that happens quite often when someone has a hard death, is that you, sure. re you remember the suffering, that's the sufferings right. of And that's what people say, mind. I yeah. don't want you to remember me like this. Yes, they do say that. And um, But having said that, she... Motor neuron disease is a terrible disease. It is. If anyone knows anything about it, I mean, it's, it's rare <laughs> and it's terrible. It's not that rare. Yeah, it's Actually. not. It's not in New Zealand. Apparently, we have a higher rate of it in New Zealand mm. than anywhere else, which mm. is probably something to do with the chemicals we treat timber with. But yeah, um, <laughs> I think they've changed all that, so it's all right now. But um, <laughs> okay, well, we, we hope can, we, we can all relax. Then. You know, I don't know. Nobody panic. No. You can't do anything anyway. It's moving on quickly. <laughs> yeah, moving on. So, so. Um, so the, so watching her, her go through that was very hard, and also because she couldn't speak for so long. Like, she lost the power to speak very early. 
and also your face the par- muscles in your face paralyzed too so i got so that i could practically read her mind you know cuz i could just see in her eyes what she wanted or needed we always very close to her no i wasn't i was i was dad's child mm. so i was his favorite and cuz i i mean i looked like him which she always said that you look so much like your father but i actually look I look in the mirror now and I see my grandmother, his mother. Boy, it's uncanny. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, there you are, Grandma. Yeah. Um, I hate it when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of good and bad. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so, so I don't think... I don't think she saw what I, that I was actually really like her until I grew up. And then, then at a certain point, she clicked and we became very good friends. And I feel like she deeply loved my problematic older sister and, because having been worried about her all the time, and my absolutely delightful younger sister. Mary's the older sister, Sarah's Mary, younger sister. Sarah's younger sister. Uh-huh. Everyone loves Sarah because she's completely lovable and sweet, like my father. But I was kind of strange and angler and a bit difficult and um, very dramatic. And um, she thought I was like him. But after a while, it occurred to her that I was actually quite a lot like her. And we got on really well. And I always feel like I kind of climbed a hill with, with that, that, that I ended up being her friend and her confidant. Yeah, yeah. Which was lovely. Yeah, yeah. I think we all hope, wish that our mothers live or lived long enough for that to happen. Yes, mine did, thank goodness. Because it's a tricky relationship, mother-daughter relationship. It is. It is. It's really tricky. Um, but I, because, because I'm married to a man whose mother died and you know his sister clearly missed having a mother in her life, I kind of look at it and I think, well, unless you have a monstrous mother, boy, it's just about better having any kind of a mother. I might think? be wrong about that. No, I mean, I'm not arguing. You might be right. Yeah. I mean, we all have to accommodate difficult characters, and mothers are often very difficult characters. Yeah, no, it's like, it's great when you can sort of like flick your friends when they finally annoy you too much, but no, your family, you're stuck. No, you're stuck. Are you you in any way a difficult mother? Oh, I'm sure my son would say I am, but I don't. That's really what I'm asking you. Because on account of the fact that you have a son and you are his yeah, mother. Yeah, but I think, I think if someone said to him, yes, but, really? He'd go, well, yeah, no, actually, she's, you know, she's annoying in this way, but she's good in this way. Right. Like, yeah, because I, I, I think that's basically been my mothering. I've been a clumsy plot sometimes and um, genius other times, which a lot of, I think a lot of parents probably get that feeling where you go, oh, geez, I got that right. And then, oh, man, I messed that up. Yeah. Um, Jack writes fantasy. Yes, he does. Ship of the Old. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of the great pleasures of my life is to have someone in the household who's constantly talking to me about stories. Yeah, so, you know, poor old Fergus sort of sits there with us going, nah, da, 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 about like, well, I think I'll have the, do I have the flood happen before I see the flood caused? Or do I, you know, is, is the better it comes as a surprise? Or? So essentially you're still playing the game Yeah, no, it's with Jack. Well, no, not really. It's not, yeah, the game's, it's not that. the game's, since I'm still playing the game anyway, so that's, you know, that's a. With Sarah. Yeah, with Sarah on the Zoom now. Everybody knows about Elizabeth's game, right? Yeah, no, no, no. Well, it's it's kind of famous that you grew up 
inventing these incredibly complicated games with mainly Sarah, also Mary. Yeah, and with several friends. So and with a next-door neighbour friend, Carol. And this and, went and on then, for years yes, and years yes. and years. And still goes on. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's regular entertainment. To begin stuff. with, I don't mean to bang on about this, but in the early days, I think you described it as a way of mm, uh, uh, finding a calm place in the game while your father ranted drunkenly and played Marla very high level. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's not nearly necessarily the, ga the game's a refuge of calm. It's just that it's intensely distracting. So yeah. you, the drama's bigger, but you're not you. Your your characters, mm. um, so and that's why you write, isn't it? Well, I write because of the game, certainly, and because I couldn't write. I mean, I, you know, I I worked out over years and years that I had a um, a learning difficulty of the unusual sort. Um, someone told me when I was describing myself as dyslexic, and I described my experience, and they then they were a special needs type. You know, literacy teacher retired somewhere in the Hawks Bay. This man sitting in my audience, he said, "What you're describing is not dyslexia; it's dysgraphia. Look it up." <laughs> so I looked it up, and I thought, "Oh, that was so me." And what is it? Well, it's it's um, you can't write. You can read really well, but you can't write. So it's like things. You mean go physically? It looks like it's physical, but it's actually it's a brain thing. Right. But um, it's um, what it feels like is having a wall of glass when it comes to <laughs> pushing something out. And um, it's often caused by um, brain damage, usually global brain damage from oxygen deprivation at birth, which happened to me. So I was a placenta Pravaria baby, so the placenta fell out 20 minutes before I was born. So I had oxygen deprivation. And what happens then is that you've got, you've got mild brain damage and your brain is very plastic still and it reroutes and it reroutes in strange ways and quite often produces dysgraphia. And I talked really, I walked late, but I talked really late. Like I was nearly three before I said anything at all. What and did I you talked, say first? Whole sentences, mum says. So I was, didn't say a word, and then I just upped and talked in whole sentences, cool. which is weird. That is weird. Yeah. So, um, but I can remember understanding what people were saying when I was really little, because I can remember things from when I was tiny and remembering things people said, and particularly novel words like, you know, when it, there was like choo-choo, the choo-choo train or um, the shears, because mum called her sewing scissors scissors, but my cousin, when he was running around chasing us, was calling them the shears, and it was just, and I was 18 months old, but I was taking it <laughs> Dysfunctional in. family, not much, really. But <laughs> Running with shears. I was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, yes, boys, eh? He was older. <laughs> but yeah, um, so I just... When I went to school, I learned to read really quickly, but I could, but they'd ask you me to do writing. So I can remember the classic one that I remember having having a moment where I realised that I couldn't do something and I didn't know why I couldn't. Was I was asked to write about the life cycle of a caterpillar, and I wrote words in columns. So I wrote um, a word, a word, a word, a word, a word, a word. So it was 
I was writing what I thought was a page yeah. of writing as asked for, and then I was told that I was being naughty. And that was what happened to me the whole time because I could read really well, but I wouldn't write, so they said I was lazy and naughty. And But really it was just this wall of glass. And then, you know, I just gave up. And mm. then I, because of the imaginary game, I started writing letters between characters and then I thought, I was writing letters one day, but, you know, writing a letter from my character to um, my next-door neighbour friend's character. I just thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I love telling stories. I want to be a writer. And I just started writing all the time. And I'm, you know... But, I but just writing... Writing, writing stories. Without any problem. No, no, with problems. And like like um, my first novel I finished when I was 19, I had the words as though all the way through as A-S-O, as-O. Yeah, so that's a classic sort of thing. And I still do that. I just wrote someone, I just wrote um, Blenheim 2021 on someone's book I signed for them out there. And I spelled Blenheim wrong. I can't spell. How do you spell it? Um, don't ask me. It's okay. <laughs> cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, it's a, I'm telling the truth, aren't I, Fergus? My brain is just, it's weird. And it's getting worse again. Like, I think I'm, I think my middle-aged, I, I reached a level of competence linguistically. I don't think linguistically when I speak I'm losing it, and thank goodness for dictation. But I... Because you speak your books. So no, no, I write them longhand, but I don't have to spell anything anymore. No one has to. <laughs> because? Because of, the spell check. But how do they get, so you write them longhand? I write them longhand, and then I talk to a fabulous program. I've been using it when it wasn't so fabulous. Ah. So I've been using it for mm, over 20 years now. So you read out what you've written. And, and it types it. And it types it. I don't even have to sit in front of the computer anymore. I read it into my iPhone, send the sound file, and it transcribes it. Oh. <laughs> so but you don't good. have any trouble writing. No, no, none. No. But, but I'm not spelling things right. But no. then when I pronounce the word, it gets spelled correctly. What happens is when I'm trying to, when I'm writing an email or I'm writing a short piece, so I'm writing it on the computer because I write short things on the computer. So I'm like this. And I'm thinking I need to use this word. And for the life of me, I can't figure out how to spell it. And I can't even try to find out how to spell it from Google because I can't spell it well enough for it to give me the correct word. So I start using synonyms and then I get it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's weird. But the thing about your writing, and it strikes me in your essays and in, um, in the Love School, is that you are extraordinarily observant. Do you think that's something that that came from the oxygen deprivation? Yes, no, um, it's no, but I mean associated with the no, dysgraphia. No, no, that, yeah, it is. The I mean, I'm not going to tell you what dysgraphia is associated most with. I won't tell you because it will make me sound like a pain in the ass. So I'm not telling you. But we'll just have to guess then. But it, but it does help with a big picture brain. So, like writing those novels, that everyone says, "Oh, that's so complicated." It's like, yes, well, that was fun. I say to myself, right. as I have held it all in my head. But really complicated. <laughs> yeah. 
But there are readers who love that. No, 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 I'm not complaining. No. But the ability for you, as you say, to hold all that in your head at the same time. Yeah, and I remember plots. I re- I'm, I'm terrible at well, – I do rewatch films and television, but I do remember everything about what happens. So do you think – here I am banging on about it um, – that – even though your father was fabulous early and fabulous late and just had a small bit in between where he was a complete asshole, did that make you hypervigilant in some way? No. And thus observant? No, no. The hypervigilance comes from other trauma. Yep. Does it? Yeah, which, which is why my memoir is so late coming, because <laughs> I had to write about it. Yep. This is Mary's trauma, essentially, are you saying? N- you mean uh, Sarah had things happen to her? It was Sarah. Yeah. No, but Mary did things. I All right. Was, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Um, no, because it's a, it's a can of worms, and I'd rather just wait for the memoir since I've gone to such trouble with it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a complicated thing because she was a very powerful older sister and very Machiavellian, very, very unusual person and quite a scary person, but she's... Had most mental illness most of her adult life, and she's now. I mean, partly why the memoir has taken so long is I stepped in and sectionated her because mum was so distressed about the way she was. How um, was she? She was she was hallucinating, and she thought that people were creeping into her ceiling and putting in pipes with mysterious liquid that wasn't water, and she thought that people were sneaking into her house and putting a rat in the oven because she found a rat in the oven because they live in um, squalor. Yeah. Who's they? Her and her husband. So um, it's all very... It's almost unbelievable. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to describe it. I don't want to put these pictures in your head. But you're um, going to talk about it in the memoir. Yeah, I'm going to talk about it. With her blessing? I don't know how I can do that. So that's sort of held me up. But I did have a good ending for her because she was in a really good way for a while. She was part of a tramping club and she had made friends and she was great. And I was like, well, okay, so this is this is where my story about her ends, mm. but then she just got terrible again. So um, I'm kind of stymied. I kind of just, I'm just sort of stuck. You've written about that. You've written about people asking you how you have license to write about members of your family or talk about members of your family. And you had, you said something about how the truth is more important than privacy. Um, I, what I do think, I think it's, because it's not, in the end, you actually have to act as if there are things that people do in private that are dreadful things, like the priest to my father. Take that for an example. If you don't talk about those things, then everybody who suffers them, the vulnerable people who suffer, sexual abuse particularly, think they're exceptional. The more it's specifically talked about, not not just generally talked about, but talked about with enough specificity by enough different people so that it covers all the things that can happen. It's not just some stranger man over here with some girl or boy, but, you know, all the kind of permutations of those kind of things that can, that can happen. The more that that's talked about in all its shades, the more likely the person who needs to know that they're not suffering by themselves will learn that thing. Yeah. 
So that's my moral position. That's your moral position. Mm. Do you have to explain that moral position to your family members about whom you want to write? Um, well, the only family member I want to write about is you can't explain things. So <laughs> it's kind of past that. And you, it's very difficult when you have somebody who's weak and vulnerable um, but was enormously powerful and abused their power back in the past. And in the end, you've got to say, because you're not blaming. I mean, I can't, I can't blame my older sister for anything because she was not neurologically normal, and, and which you're not allowed to say it like that. She was neuro, neuroatypical, probably, and she saw things differently and acted differently. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those... Tragedies that you can't. There's no. There's no one to blame. However, I do not think I make sense as a person to anyone in my life if they don't know these things. And I'm now 62, for Christ's sake. Yeah. So this is my reason. Okay. I mean, I think that's a good enough reason. It's good enough, but the the, the memoir might still never see the light of day. It might not. Why yeah. not? Because, oh, just, yeah, it's just too hard, you know. It's too hard to write. <laughs> it's been too hard to write, but it's too hard to think about having to talk about it. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So. Sorry. No, it's all right. I'm just getting you into practice. Yeah, no. <laughs> Thank you. Come. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you've talked about why you write a desperate need to be someone other than myself and a delight in being someone else. Yeah. But you are so you. Yeah, I'm very me. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um. Do you know what I mean, though? You are, you are so you. What's the need to be somebody else? Oh, because, wow, man, those people. Well, if you read my books, the characters, the characters come to life. Um, they're... they're, they're People. I'm not disputing that. So I'm so, asking you about your no, need but, but, to be someone else. Yes, but but I mean, I love to make up people, and I love to spend time with made up people. I mean, I've been doing it my whole life with imaginary games. I have this enormous kind of joy and affection for all those made up people. So it's not necessarily always escape. It's just it's just diversion. For the same reason that I love watching television and reading novels and you know just spending time spending time outside myself. Not because I'm horrible or anything like that. It, there were times when life was too difficult and that was part of the reason, but my life's actually okay. And so now it's just the habit of you know, the habit of diverting myself into imagining other lives. Yeah. You have had some very hard times. And have you lived long enough now to know that times will be terrible and then they won't be? Yeah. Yeah. God, that you takes that. a while to learn, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I don't think I learned that until we went through my brother-in-law being killed and, and my mother of the motor neuron disease. I that think. all happened in a short space of time. Yeah. Yes, it did. Yeah, there was a whole, and, and my older sister's psychotic break. So that was, and Fergus and I were responsible for a lot of people over that time, and my younger sister. So yeah, we were, sort of, we were the, we were the, the, you know, the, the pillars, really. And I, 
I still find myself kind of being a matriarch in my family, and it's like, hello, I'm the artist. It's like, I did not sign up for this. <laughs> but it has benefits, as in not grand benefits, but I absolutely love having um, my brother, brother-in-law's children in my life to the extent that I do, which I wouldn't have if he hadn't have died. Yeah. Your, your memoir, I think, was going to incorporate not only the story about Mary yeah. and the story about your mother's motor neuron disease, which took her, I think, a couple of three years ago now. When did she die? No, no, it's uh, two, 2012. Oh, yeah. okay. So she, yeah, it's just about two and a half years she lived with it. That's not long, actually. No, because it was a bulbar sort. So when, when you have the, the lower limb one, you live longer than the, the mouth and, you know, the face, tongue, mouth. I didn't know there were two sorts. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, so the memoir was going to be about your mother and about Mary and about Fergus's brother-in-law who was killed by Fergus's a drunken brother. driver. Yeah. Brother, excuse me. Uh, he was killed, killed by on purpose, yes. Um, on purpose? Yes. Yes. He there was, was a prosecution. Yes, yeah. The man, he went to prison for manslaughter. Yep. So, Yes. But you're not going to write about that. In the I memoir, am. Right? I'm going to write about that. It's going in my next essay book, and I oh. it couldn't go in my memoir. Although it was at the same time, what I'm going to do in my memoir is say, at the same time this was happening, but I don't have the same distance from the events. I'm, my relation to those events is standing behind Fergus because, you know, Fergus. It's Fergus's family, so I was supporting Fergus. It doesn't. It's not the same, so it doesn't fit with the other stuff, even though it happened at the same time. It's funny that. It's a really strange thing. You'd think that if it's your life and you're telling the story of it, things that happened at the same time belong together, but actually they don't. And they don't because when you come to write about them, you can't take the same tone about them. Mm. And that's what I discovered. And, you know, that I wasted a long time discovering that. And so I kind of rescued everything that still worked about that. And, and, and once I finished this young adult book, which I'm weeks away from finishing, I'll write that last essay, and then I'll have an essay book. I was just thinking about how... You, you, you could take the same tone if you were intent on dominating it with your voice. Yes, but you can't. No, no, well, you can't. You can't, but well, you can't. But well, it's just a terrible error of judgment. <laughs> it's like no, <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, it's just very. You're quite right. I mean, I can I can think of books that I've read that have that have tried to shoehorn. Things We're into, thinking of the same book. We maybe are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, quite right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just I, just, I just think you've got to understand your own perspective on things. So I've got things to say about what happened with Duncan, but they are, it's just pretty much a report on, a witness report. Like, mm. I was there, these things happened in the room, these discussions happened. Mm. Um, the day was like this and so on. But there's less, far less sort of interiority, the kind of, because the rest of the memoir is full of me reflecting upon all kinds of things. Yeah, but I don't, I didn't do so much reflecting. I did a lot of reacting with, um, with, the, with the needs of the moment. Uh. Um, you know, just watching, watching my, my mother-in-law, Fergus's stepmom, watching the kids, Watching and it's having some strange 
moments that are kind of like burned into my mind, like at the funeral, one of my nephews was running a fever. He was really quite sick. And um, he was kind of spaced out. And I can remember thinking, oh, well, I, look, there's no Panadol here. And wandering around the wilds of, of Mungary, well, it was actually Manico. So I was wandering around the wilds of Manico, not knowing where the hell I was going without an iPhone to find a, to find a place to buy Panadol for this child. <laughs> like having left the funeral and going, oh, my God, they'll miss me. They'll think, they'll wonder where I, I've, I've ghosted them. I've just walked off. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, I was on a mission. Did you find the Panadol? Yeah, I did. It was all fine. But that was my job. So it was like it was an interesting exercise of standing to the side of, you know, the mourners and thinking, what can I do, you know? And and that's very different than being the person who really is in the centre yeah, of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, we have time for some questions from the audience. And we have roving microphones, I believe, somewhere. Oh, okay. Stick your hands up then if you would like to address. Shout your question. Shout your question, Elizabeth. Um, boop, yeah, yeah, this one. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, how do you edit your work? How do you know when it's finished? Okay, so I'm. People keep asking the pants or what is it? The pants or planner question of novelists. You know, do you plan them beforehand or do you just do it? But I'm a looper, so. I um I write sort of 15,000, 20,000 words and then I polish that, read it over, think, mm, what does this feel like? And then, then, then keep going and then read it over a whole thing, polish. So by the time I get to the end of a manuscript, it's relatively clean with, with bearing in mind the dysgraphia. <laughs> so, yeah, no, there'll be some oddities, some real oddities, which give Fergus great joy when he points them out yet again. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, and then, but then I know there'll be editors. And, and the wonderful thing about having the absolute book was that, that it had two goes because then it went through the, the three editors, my English editor and two, two editors in America who worked together on it during lockdown. They were locked down and they just, they just, they just worked on my book during that time. And so oh, that, that wonderful feeling of getting clean, like clean, having your ears cleaned. Oh, yeah. It was like, it was like a Korean facial. <laughs> Not that I've ever had one. <laughs> Any more hands up? I was thinking about adverse events, and it was adversity that produced the vintner's luck, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you were broke. Well, uh, yes, but I didn't plan to write a book that sold. That was weird. Um, so, no, I just had that dream when I had pneumonia. So, yeah, and, and I'd gotten pneumonia because I'd had a respiratory Are you a infection. lucid dreamer? No. No, I do wake myself up when things get too unpleasant. You know, I'm one of those people who thinks this goes like, I'm out of here <laughs> with dreams or they get too too bad. But, um, yeah, so I dreamed the first quarter of that book when I had pneumonia. I wasn't just asleep. I was kind of like feverish and awake and then asleep again. And it was great. But, yeah, but um, it was reading it over when I wrote down the the dream, what I got from the dream, and then I read it over. I thought, ooh, oh, I think this is a bestseller. I just, <laughs> it was just did just, you? 
Yeah, it was just a, it was just a, something about it just made me think that. But also, all, my other books to date had kept some of the readers up to two in the morning. So I had it in me, but I didn't have it in me for enough people. And that's what I think it is. Like, each book won't necessarily do that for enough people. But now and then one will, and that's great. Now and then, you know, you bootstrap. So I, f I feel like I bootstrap several times, like Dream Hunter and Dreamquake, and I pulled myself up again, and then the absolute book again. So, But you didn't... We don't write for commercial reasons, do you? Uh, no, but I, I love the Howard Hawks. I didn't side. mean disapproval in my voice just now. No, 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 no. I mean, because there are perfectly legitimate ways of writing for commercial reasons and yes, writing very right. well. That's right. As you've proven. Yes, but I, but I do think that people who are very commercially successful and say they wrote for commercial reasons, like Lee Child... It's not that simple that the amount of gusto and what Lee Child does couldn't be re reproduced by someone who just sat down and said to himself, I'm going to write books like Lee Child's books. I mean, well, I, I don't know. Think He's trying to write like them with his brother now. Yeah, but it doesn't work. I wouldn't have thought so. Good. No, no. It's and that's sad. got to be a commercial decision, really. No, it? I just think he's tired and he's being nice to his brother. What I mean. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but with me, like, my favourite quote is the Howard Hawks one. And Howard Hawks is a, is a film producer, a film director from Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday and, you know, Only Angels Have Wings and lots of fabulous films. And someone asked him, because um, he was taken very seriously by the French intellectuals, you know, kind of discovered by them, much to the horror and disgust of everyone in Hollywood who thought, that man, you know. But... Um, Someone said to him, so do you think of your films as, do you think of them as art or commerce? <laughs> art or, no, do you think of them as art or entertainment? And he said, um, I think of them, I think of them as, as fun and as money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so when I'm writing, I'm not thinking of money because I don't think thinking of money will earn you money. Like, I just think you can't forget that. But I always am thinking of fun, but I'm also always thinking of what the needs of the book are, like what kind of book it wants to be. And I want it to do what I want it to do, which is to transport people and to make them cry, but also to do that thing of, you know, changing the colour of their minds, the, the Emily Bronte quote that I did last night, you know, that... that I I've wasn't had, here. I've had dreams in my life that have changed my mind and gone through and through me like wine through water and changed... Yeah, yeah, and changed the colour of my mind. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. And yeah, I, I'm kind of always aiming for that, to try to not change people's minds about something but make them feel a little bit estranged from their everyday lives for long enough to recalibrate. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what books do for me when they do the good work for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent way of putting it. Any more hands up in the air? No. There are not. They're stupefied. You've obviously, <laughs> you've obviously answered they are stupefied. Yeah. You've obviously answered everything that they have in their minds. Um, the story is that you wrote three New Zealand novels um, and then 
you couldn't get any of them published outside New Zealand or yeah, in America because yeah, they said I was yeah. to New Zealand. Yes. And so you wrote, you know, yeah, 19th century yep. novels. But I didn't Burgundy. write that on purpose for that reason. I just had the dream. Yep. That's so, right. Yeah. But that was handy, wasn't it? It was very handy. But also I've always been faintly disgusted that it worked like that because I actually really rate the book before that. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, the glamour and the glamour sea. Glamour and the sea. Yeah. Oh, that was a lovely book. Yeah, and really interesting. Yeah. It'll get revived one day. Well, that we shows a degree of confidence in yourself, no. but I'm sure you're right. I not That confident. often happens, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm I'm not confident in myself. I am confident in the fact that I really would quite like to do my own version for Audible and see what happens. Okay. Yeah. That's a mad scheme. Are you pursuing that? I am pursuing it if I ever have time. Mm. I don't mean you ask Audible, you just do it, and then you put it on the platform. Yeah. Yeah, and then you, you know, get people's money. Why? It's a theory, okay? I have a readership, they might buy it. <laughs> um, why do you want to do that, apart from making money? Why do you want to do that? Oh, I really would like to do my really New Zealand books. I would quite like to, that haven't had versions. Give them a new lease of life. Yeah, I would like to he have an audio book because I know people love audio books and they set them do up. They do now. And they ask me over and over about Wake. They, I mean, there's so many people want an audio book of Wake and, you know, there isn't one. Just do it. Yeah, just do it or just give it to my agent and give them a big poke. But why not just do it? Yeah, I could. That's right. It's, it's on my list. It was the first one on my list, and then I thought, well, maybe Glamour in the Sea. So, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. I'm so when you finished your young adult novel, is there a clear definition to you between your young adult novels and your adult novels? Um, well, I have two rules that I think are the central rules of young adult as opposed to adult, but they are nothing to do with lots of things that people think about these things. I do think you need to have young adult protagonists. You, the book needs to centre on young people. And I don't think you could deprive your readers of hope. Those are my rules. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's it. But, I mean, I don't muck around with the language or anything like right. that. Yeah, I just... I just um, yeah, and you hope but you the don't deprive your adult readers of hope, do you? Um, generally not, but I'm planning to in the memoir. Uh -huh. <laughs> Abandon oh hope, God. all you enter that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the, the current ending is absolutely crushing, so, <laughs> but it's, it's so artistic. <laughs> it's like whether, whether or not I can be talked out of it. <laughs> no, but the hope is that here you are, yeah. Telling it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You go, you go, you fall in the hole. You fall in the hole, and then sometime later you report about having fallen in the hole. Yeah. What are you going to call it? It's called Nightmare, which is sort of nightmare with two words, with some, but it's also, I used to text her all the time, like every night, like I'd say, night, no, Nightmare. Yep. So that's what it's called. Yep. Nice. Did she text you back? Yes, like pet. I was pet. My son once said to her when she called him pet, she called all her daughters pet so that she didn't have to remember the name of the one she was talking to. And then she called Jack pet and Jack said to her very firmly, Grandma, I'm not pet, Mummy's pet. <laughs> yeah. Talking about Jack, there's a, an essay in your book, The Love School, 
where you open it with a description of Jack pressing his muzzle against the back door and scrape. Oh, yeah. And I'm and thinking, Jack's the dog. excuse me, <laughs> way before you've explained that Jack is the neighbour's dog, yeah. that we you had, are taken for the walk. Yeah, no, that's right. We had two Jacks in the household and it was terrible because I'd yell at Jack. I'd say, Jack, to my son, my 10-year-old. And this poor dog will be sitting there. And it was a brainy dog. And it'll just start to shake all over. And I go, no, 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 not you. <laughs> it was terrible. I had to train myself out of it. Um, will you ever allow a movie to be made of another of your books? There is at the moment some moves afoot to make a television series of Dream Hunter and Dreamquake. So, Ooh. so we'll see. I'm that always, would be good. Yes, it would. But would you be involved in the making of it? Yes, well, see, I have been, you know. You weren't I was a big softie about the first bit of the rights, but it's coming up for recall, so I'm going to get my my agent at the CAA in California um, to to um, redo the contract, and I, and I want the floor and the ceiling to be higher, the floor and the ceiling, i.e. more money, because if they're going to take it and make a mess of it, they have to pay me. <laughs> and, and I'm... What, you be, mean you won't be involved in the making No, thereof. I want to be a script consultant. Okay. Yeah. I've got Which a, you weren't with the Vintners Love. No, I wasn't. I was, yeah, and I was really, I was a bit hornswoggled there. I mean, you know, I, that's also in the memoir. That story, the whole fitness luck things in there. So, you know, that, that'll be the only thing the journalists talk about. They won't talk about all the other Have stuff. you had to put it through your lawyers? Um, I will go through that process later. So I'll just write what I write and then see how it goes. Because I'm not really, I'm not, like, I, I, I'm interested in telling that story. But, and it's an interesting story, but I don't care if it gets watered down completely because it's not, that's not what I really care about in the book. It's just salient because, you know, the amount of ratcheting up of stress levels and feelings of losing control and disappointment and everything at the same time as having, you know, murdered brother-in-laws and motor neurone disease and sisters having psychotic braces. Careful, careful with the tone now. <laughs> it's tone. Yeah. Too much tone. It's yeah. Um, but, you know... I want to know whether you actually fell out with Nikki Caro. Fell out? Fell out. I didn't have a chance to talk to her after the whole, um, when I saw it and I realised it was what it was. And So I, did you have a, 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 you know, a pre-screening? Yeah, I had a pre-screening. And, I and you saw it and you thought this is not... Uh, no, yes, I did, but I didn't think that straight away because I kept, I came off the end of viewing it thinking I was going to see more. It was this if everything was right about it continued in my mind as if I hadn't watched the whole film. It was very strange. And then I was in denial. And then I came home from Park Road Post where we'd seen the screening. And I was walking up the stairs and I proudly put up the poster for the film some days beforehand when it was sent to me. And I just passed it and then I just tore it down. Uh, like, and then I thought, that's what you feel. That's what you feel. And yeah. is that because you were so attached no, no, it's the because she took, she took the gay love story, virtually took the gay love story that's the centre of the book out of the book. Why do you think she did that? I have no idea because she never told me, because she wouldn't talk to me. Do you think it's because... And she didn't talk to me for eight weeks before I talked to the press. Uh, she could have called me. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, these are things. Um, I am saying I should stop. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't want to leave it on that note. Help me out here. Ask her another question. <laughs> Hand up. Come on. I bet they'll ask you questions at your session tomorrow morning. Yeah, it's about the absolute book, so please ask me about theories. <laughs> oh. As it wasn't anything to do with Vicky taking that gay theme out. In those days, it was regarded as quite commercial. It's still her call, though. Maybe not. But, yeah. You mean she couldn't have raised the money if it had had too much? Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, that could have happened, but it would have been nice to have that explained. And then, and then right. it, it would have been like a very short time afterwards, scarcely any time at all, Brokeback Mountain won the Oscar. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so it's, it it's judgment. Time. It's, it yeah, wrong, yeah. Wrong, wrong. wrong at that time. It was always wrong, but it was particularly wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I... I want to ask a question, but I, we, we read that book, we read your book, and Zanita in my book, and the, the conversations we had for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months, we keep coming back to the witness lark about how, how full it was, and the conversations and the discussions, so it's Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm very glad it came into my life. <laughs> I want to read you. I was looking at this. Um, David Larson wrote a story um, called Love Versus Dread in 2014. He adores your writing, David Larson. And I just want to read you this quote um, from The Vintner's Luck. He lay braced by a wing, pure sinew and bone under a cushion of feathers, complicated and accommodating against his side, hip, leg, the pinions split around his ankle. The angel was breathing steadily and smelled of snow. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll give you the Brilliance of Elizabeth Knox. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Elizabeth Knox speaking to Kim Hill at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about this year's event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>